are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Thank you, Pastor Damien, for the intro. You know, whenever these things happen, I was like, do I need to record this and play it for my wife? Thanks. Like I said last night, she'll still say that's nice. Take out the trash. So, <laughs> it is really good to be with you all uh, this morning and this weekend uh, to be down here uh, and really particularly uh, to break the bread of life with you, share a message with you from God's word out of the passage that was just read into your hearing in John chapter 17. I want to speak to you uh, this morning on this subject, one God, one people, one witness. One God, one people, one witness. And the point of this message that I want to get across, of everything that I want to say is simply this, that the supernatural life of God's people united together in beautiful, diverse community is the most powerful witness to the world that Jesus is real. Supernatural life of God's people united together in beautiful, diverse community is the most powerful witness to the world that Jesus Christ is real. Start here by telling you about uh, one of my new favorite comedians. Uh, his, uh, his public name is Kev on Stage. Uh, Kev on Stage, I've come uh, to be familiar with him over the past few years, mostly through his Facebook and Instagram posts, one to three minute uh, clips that he, uh, of monologues that he, that he does. And, you know, he's uh, clearly has some roots in the historic black church in America because he is able to do some of the best black preacher impersonations that you ever want to hear. Something else that he's doing recently has gotten my attention, and he'll get together with five, four or five other comedians, and they will have a panel discussion and title their discussion, Unpopular Opinion. Now, what the Unpopular Opinion discussion is about 
is one of the comedians will take a position on a particular subject that is sure to be such an extremely minority position that he or she will be roundly criticized by the other comedians on the panel. The recent unpopular opinion episode was titled, Krispy Kreme is Trash. <laughs> Comedian DZ does not consider Krispy Kreme donuts to be of any particular value. He gets his opening monologue, his opening 45 to 60 seconds of an uninterrupted statement of his position, and he started this way. My unpopular opinion is that Krispy Kreme has to be the worst donut establishment ever to grace the earth. And, he's, and donuts, he said, are the best thing that God has ever graced us with as humans, and they have messed it up. They'll have the hot sign flashing outside and still serve you a cold donut. And the icing is not really it. It's very thin and really sugary. Their donuts have this cotton candy vibe. It's just, you eat it, the dough just melts away in your mouth. And then Ricky interrupted him, and she said, he's gone far enough. How, when do we get to make him stop talking? And then another comedian chimed in, and he said, you know, you're complaining about everything that makes it great. It's sugary frosting. It, it melts in your mouth. These are the things that make it a great donut. And the indignities and the insults went on for a few minutes. I don't know how you feel, what your particular opinion is of Krispy Kreme uh, donuts, and I respect your opinion, whatever it is, on this particular issue. And the question is, what do donuts have to do with our sermon passage this morning? Not a whole lot, uh, but only this. Uh, while these comedians disagree in a funny way and they don't always come to agreement at the end of their discourse, they find a way throughout it to foster a mutual respect and understanding. And my point is this, when you watch it, you know that these people have a affection for one another. You have this diverse group of comedians, and, and I watch it because it's funny, but their unity in their affection for one another in their diversity is very attractive to me. It's a draw. And here's the deal. There's so much division and so much animosity and so much polarization and so much contempt in our world that when we see people with deep differences able to express a mutual affection for one another, there's something that's appealing and attractive about it. And that's okay for comedians and for sports teams and in the entertainment world and, and the like, but Jesus, in our passage, takes this to another level. He's talking in this passage before us about the church, about his church through the ages. And what is his dis expressed desire for the people who claim to follow him? It is that they would be one, that they would be unified, and the unity that is being described in this passage is unity in diversity, such that when people who don't follow Jesus yet 
look at his church, their response to what they see should be, Jesus must be real. Jesus' prayer is that when people look at his followers, they will experience a portrait of supernatural love. They will see a love at work that overcomes divisions, that reconciles contraries, a a love that brings into communion and fellowship people who might have nothing in common except the fact that Jesus Christ gave himself up for them. Let's look at how this works out in this passage. One God, one people, one witness. John chapter 17 It's called Jesus' High Priestly Prayer. Uh, He's preparing for his betrayal and his crucifixion. And this chapter, chapter 17, it, it ends the section that began in John chapter 13. John chapter 13, verse 1, where John says, Before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew, he knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world and go to the Father. John says, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So chapters 13 to 17 are Jesus' farewell discourse, preparing the 12 disciples for his departure. And amazingly, at the end, uh, they're led in on this intimate prayer that he offers to his Father. And the striking emphasis and insistence is that he and the Father are one. And John has been setting us up throughout this gospel to hear this declaration out of Jesus' own mouth. The first person to testify about Jesus' divine identity, that that he was God, was John himself. In fact, that's how he starts out this gospel book in chapter 1 and verse 1 with the words, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that has been made. And then those who oppose Jesus, they testify that they understand Jesus to be claiming equality with with God. Back in chapter 5 of this this gospel, Jesus was accused by the Jewish leaders of of breaking the Sabbath by by healing a sick man. And, And Jesus answered their accusation and said, my father is working until now and I am working. And John says that this is why those leaders were were seeking all the more to kill Jesus because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but they understood he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And Jesus continues to lean in hard on the reality of his divinity. He says in chapter 10, my sheep Hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. 
And now at the beginning of this prayer, in chapter 17, he starts out, John says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, And Jesus Christ, whom you have sent, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world began. When we get to our passage, we hear Jesus in verse 22 say to the Father, the glory that you have given them, Uh, Given me, I've given to them that they may be one, even as we are one. You understand what's going on here? These disciples uh, who are here with Jesus for this discourse, they had a foundational and a fundamental confession of faith that they had known their entire lives for as far back as they could remember. It, it was spoken first to the people of Israel out of the mouth of Moses in Deuteronomy chapter four, 6, verses 4 to 5, where Moses says this to Israel, Hear, O Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your, with all your soul, and with all your might. And what they are now being clued in on to realize is that their great confession of faith that the Lord our God is one was not just a confession that there was only one God. <laughs> It was also a confession about the unity of God. It was also their bringing brought in to this reality that, that the one God was unity and diversity himself, Father and Son and Holy Spirit. That this is the one God to whom they declared their confession of faith. And this understanding This understanding of who the one God is, it sets the table for us to grasp the one people that Jesus is praying for here. In verses 5 to 19 of the chapter, Jesus is primarily praying for his 12 disciples, minus Judas Iscariot, who would betray him. And he even prays for the unity of his disciples in a similar way. In verse 11 of this chapter, he says to the Father, and I am no longer in the world but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. He says, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. And then he shifts the focus of his prayer in verse 20. I do not ask for these only, the twelve, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. If you are a Christian this morning, you are included in this prayer. This prayer is about you if you are following Jesus Christ. 
It's about me and you together as followers of Jesus Christ. What does he want the Father to do with us? What does he want the Father to do? Make us all one. Three times in rapid succession, he says this in in successive verses, verse 21, that they may all be one, just as you are in, a Father are in me and I in you. Verse 22, the glory that you have given to me, I've given to them that they may be one, even as we are one. Verse 23, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfectly one. One, one, one. Jesus is looking toward the future of his church, and he is praying for those who would come to believe in him through the apostolic word. And what is chief on his mind? their unity and their love for one another. Three times in the verses, he prays that his people would be one, that that in his name, there would be among his people a reversal of the fragmentation and the division and the polarization and the contempt that divides human relationships and communities. The purpose of Jesus Christ bringing us into his glory is our unity. That's what he means in verse 22 when he says, The glory that you've given me, I've given them. Why? That they may be one. Don't miss a few things here. First, this is not simply a prayer for monocultural unity or monoethnic unity in Jesus' name. John's audience for this gospel book that he wrote, John's initial audience would have been diverse, including Jews and Gentiles. It was a culturally diverse community who first received this, this book And they had already heard Jesus, John, tell them what Jesus says in chapter 3 in verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. They, They didn't hear Jesus say, for God so loved the people of Israel that he gave his only son. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. They had already heard John tell them that Jesus said to the people of Israel in chapter 10 and verses 15 and 16, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. And Jesus said, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them in also, and they will listen to my voice, for there will be one flock There will be one shepherd, one, 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 unity and diversity. Do not miss that this is a prayer for unity and diversity. Secondly, don't miss 
that this prayer for unity and reconciliation is actually rooted in what God says about humanity in the very beginning of the Bible. Genesis chapter 1, the first words we hear about humanity is that God says out of his own mouth, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over every uh, creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. People are the only legitimate image of God in the world. And the God who declared us to be his image, he is in himself unity and diversity. So we were created to image him as unity and diversity, but our sin and our rebellion against him made fragmentation and division more our story than unity. And so if this is going to be accomplished, if any kind of real unity and diversity is going to be accomplished, is going to be maintained, God has to do it himself. God has to be the one to reconcile us together in his name. He has to be the one to restore us into the truth of what it means for us to be his image. This is what Jesus is praying for. And third, don't miss the fact that the binding glue in this unity and diversity is love. Jesus says at the end, starting in verse 23, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. And then he concludes in verses 24 to 26, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you've given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I have made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. What is the bond between the Father and the Son? What is the bond between the Father and the Son? It's love. Jesus says, you love them even as you love me. He says, you loved me before the foundation of the world. The love that God has within himself is eternal. God, God is beautiful, simple, simple love, and it is expressed in the perfect agreement between the Father and the Son and the Spirit. 
spirit. It is expressed in the way that the son defers to the father. And we see it in the way that the father supports the son. And we experience it in the way that the spirit proceeds from the father and the son. God is love in eternally existent, mutually glorifying, mutually honoring and supporting diverse community. This is the love that Jesus brings us into and calls us to pursue with one another. Apostle Paul, in his letter to the Colossians, he, he applies this same truth to that diverse community, that diverse Christian community in the city of Colossae. He says to them in chapter 3 and verse 11, he says, Here, Colossians, in the church, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. So he could say that to them in the city of Colossa. Why? Because in a part of the Colossian church, you had people who came out of Judaism, you had Greeks, you had people who would have been referred to as barbarians, Scythians, slave people, free people. They are now together in one body. And he says after that, since this is true, he says starting in verse 12, put on then. As God's chosen ones, you, Colossians, in this diverse community, you are now God's elect. You are God's chosen ones. And so put on then, as God's chosen ones who are holy and who are loved, put on compassionate hearts. Put on kindness. Put on humility. Put on meekness. Put on patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. He says, as the Lord has forgiven you, you must also forgive. And then he says, above all these things, above all these things, he says, put on love. Put on love, which is which, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. This is what he is, he, he's only applying what Jesus is praying for. Above all these things, put on love, the love that is, that is present and has been eternally in the Godhead between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that we are brought into and called to pursue. Paul says, this is what you are to do. And this is what it looks like in your diversity. Above all these, put on love. It's the binding glue of perfection for diverse Christian community, just like it is for God himself. Repeat what I said at the beginning of this message. This love in practice, this love is one that overcomes divisions. It is a love that reconciles contraries, people who are contrary to one another. It is a love that brings into intimate communion and fellowship people who might have nothing to do with each other apart from the fact that Jesus Christ gave himself for them. The testimony of the one God reconciling us into 
one diverse people, it serves as the one witness to the world that Jesus is real. It serves as the testimony to the world that Jesus Christ is who he says he is. Jesus, he lets us in on a primary problem. There's a bookend, there's a bracketing in this chapter of what this primary problem is. Jesus says, I read it already, I'll say it again in verse 25. He says, O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. The world does not know you, Father, but I do. That's the problem. The world does not know you. At the beginning of the chapter in verse 3, he said, This is eternal life, Father, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Knowing God at the beginning, knowing God at the end in this bracket, here's the reality. This is the problem. How is the world who doesn't know God going to come to know God? What is going to be a primary witness to the world that Jesus is real? How is the world going to come to know that he's really God? The Bible is full of miracles, isn't it? We find the miraculous throughout the Bible, miraculous healings and, and, the, and the casting out of, of demons uh, and, uh, and even, yes, the resurrection from the dead. But interestingly enough, Jesus leaves all of that out in this passage. He prays for the oneness for the unity of his people as a witness to the world that he's real. So that, he says in verse 21, the world may believe that you sent me. So that, he says in verse 23, the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. This unity is the evidence to the world that Jesus Christ is real. The church's most powerful witness to the watching world that Jesus is who he says he is, is not signs and wonders like miraculous healings. I'm not anti-miracle. But here's what Jesus is getting at. This witness is miraculous. This witness he's talking about is supernatural. It's the supernatural life of God's people united in, in beautiful, diverse community by a love that they would not have for one another were not it for the fact that Jesus gave it to them. Listen, to refuse to pursue unity and diversity as a redeemed people of God is to fundamentally neglect what it means for us to be the image of God. It is to neglect a fundamental aspect of the church's witness to the world. The world should look at the church and be in awe. 
The world should look at the church and marvel and wonder and be perplexed and say, how did that happen? How is that possible? How are they together? That doesn't fit in my calculus. That doesn't fit as making sense. Why is that happening? Too often it's the case that this wonder and amazement is absent when the world looks at the church. And here's a question. What is it? Where are the places of division, the places of polarization, the places of fracture between between people and communities in this city? That the Lord would be pleased to use this church to be a, a message of healing reconciliation for. Can we be praying like that? Can we be praying like that as a body? Lord, open our eyes to see the places of disunity and division in this community and make us a, a body that represents the reconciling power of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Look, let me tell you this. Um, let me tell you this. What do you think God the Father thinks of Jesus' prayer here? You imagine that the Father hears, God the Father hears the prayer of God the Son and is going to decline the request? No, right? Quite the opposite. Quite the opposite. It's the Father's delight. It is the Father's delight to give the Son the inheritance of the nations. To give the Son a unified people by the reconciling power of the Spirit. And so my encouragement to us this morning is to wade deeply, wade deeply into the waters of pursuing unity and diversity in Jesus' name. Engage in love and humility, the difficult pursuit of, of intimate communion with people from diverse backgrounds and cultures and ethnicities and, yes, even political persuasions. You should see all of that in the body. We shouldn't actually be able to say, oh, you know, politically, that's a red church over there, that's a blue church over there. Jesus said in John 10 that there'll be one flock and one shepherd. One flock and one shepherd. It is God's delight. It is God's delight to show the world the glory of Jesus Christ. To show the world the glory of Jesus Christ and the power of his spirit in reconciling people together across lines of difference and division. It's his delight. 
That's why we pursue it. That's why we do it. Not because we're trying to manufacture something, but know that it's a done deal. It is a reality because Jesus has already made the request and the Father has already answered it with his affirmative yes. Because he rose and raised him up from the dead. That there might be one flock and one shepherd. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we give you praise for that wonderful truth, even though we might struggle to see it worked out in practice today in our lives, because there's still division and difference and polarization even within your church. We thank you for the truth that there is indeed one flock and one shepherd, and that Jesus is indeed the one who has brought us into unity in diversity and that it is fully accomplished. And so, Lord God, would you be pleased to give us a taste of it in the here and now, that we might experience that kind of love that reconciles people across every line of difference, that people might come to know that you are real because of our love for one another. Do it for your glory and our good, through Jesus Christ. Amen.